Okay, welcome to Inspired. Uh, I'm Sarah Loudon from Total Health Conferencing, and I'm so excited about tonight's interview. I'm joined by my co-moderator, Dr. Rachel Matani, a breast medical oncologist from the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center of the University of Miami, and Dr. Mark Pegram. And I'm gonna read Dr. Mark Pegram's um, bio, short bio, just so that we kind of get a, an idea of who we're here with tonight, although he really needs no introduction in the oncology world. Dr. Mark Pegram is the first director of the Breast Cancer Oncology Program at Stanford Women's Cancer Center. He's also the co-director of Stanford's Molecular Therapeutics Program. He's a renowned clinician and scholar in breast cancer research and a leader in translational medicine. Dr. Pegram played a major role in developing the drug Herceptin as a treatment for HER2-positive breast cancer, which constitutes about 20% of all cases. His lab experiments demonstrated that combining Herceptin with chemotherapy effectively killed cancer cells that overproduced the growth factor HER2. Dr. Pegram and others then conducted clinical trials showing that Herceptin improved survival rates and even cured some breast cancer patients. This remains one of the most premier examples of bench-to-bedside translational research. Dr. Pegram's current research efforts include a continued focus on the cancer-associated gene that encodes HER2 and developing new ways to target cancer cells expressing this protein. He's also pursuing strategies to target estrogen receptors implicated in almost 70% of all breast cancer cases. Dr. Pegram earned his undergraduate and medical degrees from the University of North Carolina before joining the faculty of the University of California, Los Angeles. He, felt he spent five years at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, where he was a Sylvester Chair Professor of Medicine in the Brayman Family Breast Cancer Institute and Associate Director for Clinical Research in the university's Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. He's been with Stanford since 2012. So Dr. Pegram, Mark, I'm so happy to have you here with us tonight. Um, I think we're out of time because the bio was too long. <laughs> yeah. The bio is also about at least five years out of date, so I apologize. Well, that. that was the most recent one that I could find, so. I'm sure it's still on a Stanford website somewhere. You're right. <laughs> I always remember when I was uh, at a meeting with Mark and, and the um, person who was introducing him was um, reading his lengthy bio and, and Mark finally got uh, uh, sat up and stepped in and said, uh, I'm Mark from California. <laughs> right, that's all you need to know, yeah. And you know, the, what I hate about bios is it makes, it, it's just so artificial because, you know, you know, working on drug development, you're part of a very large team. It's not one individual that, uh, makes that happen. It's a, it's a group, it's a team, it's an academia, academia industry partnership, et cetera. So it goes, you know, much deeper than a, a short bio would indicate. And yeah. uh, as you probably are aware, uh, my mentor, Dennis Slayman at UCLA, uh, just got the Lasker Prize uh, at the end of last year as a result of the discovery and the use of uh, Herceptin. Um, so uh, he shared the award with Axel Ulrich, who, who, who was among the first to clone the HER2 gene. And then uh, Mike Shepard, whose lab uh, a lot of the antibody work was done in, including the humanization strategy that was pioneered by uh, uh, Len Presta and Paul Carter. Um, so those are really the, the real heroes behind that project in particular. But I was very fortunate to be, you know, first uh, Dennis Slayman's fellow in the lab and in the clinic, and then eventually uh, junior faculty under his uh, mentorship and leadership. And it was, uh, it was quite a wild ride. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, I think, you know, as people, just like what you're saying, when you, when you think about bios, you know, there's, it's just this one dimensional kind of moment in time snapshot of who you are, which really is why we've decided to kind of develop this inspired series, because we wanted to kind of get behind that and say, you know, who else are you? Uh, especially since many of us who have the honor and pleasure of knowing you uh, know that you are so many other things, including the guy who always has uh, an encouraging word and a way for us to smile and laugh at otherwise long, long meetings. Um, so it's really wonderful to have you here as uh, our first guest. Reshma and I were so happy that this was kind of the way everything fell out. 
So Mark, we've got about an hour tonight, which I know will feel like it goes by so quickly, especially as we kind of get down into the dive of, of you and who you are. There's a lot of people that are interested in, in hearing more. Actually, I think um, we, might, we might finish early. <laughs> I think that's all we're going to cover. We should be done in about 20 minutes. <laughs> so I wondered if you would share a little bit about growing up, where you grew up, um, kind of the environment that you grew up in, if you've got a big family that you're from. Give us a little bit about the Mark Pegram as a, as a young boy. So, uh, you know, my, one of my favorite questions is what do I have in common with Britney Spears, Elvis Presley, and William Faulkner? Fair to make a guess at that? Um, hmm. No. <laughs> we're, all, we're all born in Mississippi. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I was born in Gulfport, Mississippi, but I can't really say I'm a native Mississippi stump jumper because I think I only lived there about three months or something. And then, uh, so I really grew up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, out in Buffalo Grove, right off of Arlington Heights Road, which used to have cornfields on the other side of the road. Uh, my parents both grew up on farms. My father grew up on a tobacco farm in uh, the Piedmont section of uh, Central West North Carolina, and my mother grew up on a, a corn farm in uh, rural southeastern South Dakota, uh, outside of Beersford and Vermilion. Uh, and to this day, uh, the old farm uh, still does not have paved roads. It's still uh, all dirt roads out there. So it's literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, my father's idea of a good time uh, for uh, Christmas vacation was to drive from Chicago to Sioux Falls to see the family. Uh, that was never fun. I always got the flu every single year. I never need another flu vaccine, I don't think, because uh, I got it each and every year uh, out there in the plains of South Dakota. So then, uh, anyway, Chicago is a, a great place to grow up. I did not grow up in the city, however, since I was out in the suburbs. But, it, you know, I still got into the city enough. I, you know, became a Cubs fan. Me and my friends would go to Wrigley Field and watch, uh, you know, watch the, the old players. Uh, Fer Fergie Jenkins was on the mound back in those days. Ron Santa was on third. Joe Pepitone played for the team. Ernie Banks was there. So a bunch of old names for any of you who are old Chicago Cubs fans. And they finally won the World Series just a few years ago. So, uh it only took a uh, hundred and some years. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, Chicago is a great place. I grew up really good school systems. And so that, uh, that served me very well. I always had great teachers, um, you know, medium sized classrooms, et cetera. I was in the first, uh, the first freshman class of then the new Buffalo Grove high school that was just built uh, when I was a freshman. And then when I was a senior in, uh, in high school, my father was relocated by his company. He was an electrical engineer. So he was relocated by Telex down to uh, Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. So I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina when I was in high school. And then um, because uh, my family uh, didn't have the resources to, to send me to private schools, I went to the state supported school in uh, Chapel Hill. So I did my uh, um, undergrad and medical school at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. If I would have uh, stayed in uh, Chicago, I probably would have gone to Champaign-Urbana to the University of Illinois. In fact, I had spent a summer there doing a, um, uh, like a, this music, uh, music summer getaway as a, probably a junior high, high school kid. And I just loved the town. And so that, that was my plan was to go to University of Illinois and then it became University of uh, North Carolina. And my, Mark, uh, tell, go me, ahead. tell me, you know, you, you talked about going, kind of getting into doing your undergrad and then going to medical school. Did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor, especially coming from, you know, such a strong farming background? No, not at all. Um, in fact, I was a chemistry major at, at Carolina and the Department of Chemistry at University of North Carolina was actually a very strong department. And consequently, they encouraged me to go to graduate school in chemistry. And that was the plan. In fact, I was uh, accepted at Caltech to uh, study organic chemistry, synthetic organic chemistry specifically. And then I got into medical schools also. And so I had to make the decision whether to do chemistry or medicine. And, um, you know, it was just kind of a last minute decision. And I don't have a strong basis for why I chose what I did. I could have gone either way. And I think I would have been happy either way. Um, but that's what I chose. But it was really kind of at the last minute. It was, yeah. it was not an easy decision. Yeah. And 
And when you were, as you were kind of going through medical school and, and taking all of your subjects and then deciding about training what you were interested in doing, when did oncology kind of come into the mix? That was a little bit easier um, because, you know, I always enjoyed aspects of medicine that really require a lot of thinking to uh, work up complex diagnoses and, uh, you know, complex treatments, et cetera. And so uh, one of the things I that I always enjoyed uh, in internal medicine was uh, infectious diseases. So I thought that would be an interesting subject to go into. But um, at the time, given my background in um, chemistry and as a medical student, I had spent time in a molecular biology lab. So I cloned a gene for preproglucagon one summer from uh, pancreatic islet cells from anglerfish. I mean, this was really basic stuff back in those days. But learning the technology of cloning and, and sequencing, it, uh, it became apparent to me as a resident that, um, that oncology would probably be a good field to get into since it is a disease of the genes. And I reasoned that understanding the you know, molecular genetic mutations that occur that give rise to the cancer could be, you know, I was only speculating at the time, but I figured that that would probably be a wise field to get into that would keep you busy for a long time. And uh, little did I know that it would be possible to sequence a whole genome in a person in those years, because when I was doing sequencing in the lab, I poured my own sequencing gels and did all my own sequencing reactions. So it would take you know, weeks to get uh, you know, maybe 900 base pairs of information out of the 3 billion in the genome. So uh, now you can sequence a tumor genome, which is even more complex than the normal genome. And, and now you can get that commercially. I mean, it's readily available you know, at a reasonable cost. And I never would have imagined that, ever. So uh, I guessed right that uh, genomics would be an important aspect of oncology but it was only a guess. This is, boy, this is a long time ago. This is probably 19, 1980, late 1980s, I think is uh, probably when I was in uh, residency. That's when I decided oncology was uh, interesting. It sounds like- The thing about oncology that I liked is, uh, you know, back in those days before the advent of uh, blood cell growth factors, um, there were a lot of infectious complications in oncology. And so there was a lot of infectious disease in oncology. So that's why I liked oncology clinically, is it married the interest in terms of molecular genetics of cancer biology with the clinical uh, thing that I liked in infectious diseases, it had both. And that's what I liked about oncology. Mark, it's really interesting. I think I've had a conversation with you about this in the past that you have a really unique background in that um, being in translational medicine research, you really haven't uh, done formal training in, as a MD PhD, but kind yeah. of on the job training, as you mentioned, and that's really that's really a unique because uh, you don't you don't see that much. Uh, a lot of us that are more clinicians and are trained as MDs or DOs and haven't spent that much time in the lab um, have that disconnect between the basic science aspect. But you seem to have gotten there, um, you know, with uh, your own hard work and grit. Well, I don't recommend it. I mean, I, I should have done an MD-PhD, and that's one thing that I regret in hindsight. Um, the, uh, the problem, you know, in fact, I was asked by my research advisor in medical school to stay on after the summer that I worked in the molecular biology lab. They, they told me I should stay on and just do an MD-PhD. But at that point in time, I was already looking at eight years in Chapel Hill, and I was just getting, you know, ready to move on. And so I, you know, for, for that reason only, just because I wanted to go somewhere different, um, I didn't stay on to do my PhD. And I probably, in hindsight, I think I should have um, because I've always regretted that. I think it would have been fun. Uh, I would be better at what I'm doing now. Although, you know, I guess working in Dennis Lehman's lab as a fellow, you know, I probably, you know, uh, got almost the equivalent of a PhD experience by working in that laboratory environment. So that was extremely rewarding um, intellectually, and uh, had I been a graduate student, I think I, I think I would have been able to get uh, a PhD in that lab if I would have uh, been in the right, you know, phase of my career to do it that way. Well, before I um, ask Reshma to kind of go a little bit deeper into some of the incredible um, drug and diagnostic developments that you've been a part of, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, anyone who knows you knows you love wine and you love the arts. And um, 
you love to mix those two things together. Uh, and so I really want you to kind of share with us where those those passions came from did you always were was that something you always were interested in or did it kind of was it inspired by other people well let's start with a wine story first i didn't know anything about wine i lived in los angeles for 17 years and um you know my wife and i would rarely buy wine and maybe for a special occasion like a birthday or an anniversary instead of buying a 20 dollars bottle of wine we'd buy a 40 dollars bottle of wine and frankly they tasted exactly the same to us so we thought it was all smoke and mirrors, kind of like modern art, you know, that people pay high prices for a banana stuck on a wall or whatever. We thought it was all just noise and just a lot of fun, but, but nothing to it. We actually went to the wine country one time. We drove up there from Los Angeles. We drove through. I don't think we ever stopped. We just drove through. And I said, this looks just like farmland. It's just grape farms instead of corn farms, but it's no difference. I, I said, I don't see the appeal. I don't get it. So I had written it off. I, I had no interest in wine whatsoever. Then uh, um, maybe a year or so before I moved to Miami, I was at a meeting in South Florida and a, a colleague of mine, Mark Ridgway, who at the time worked at Genentech, mm -hmm. he came up to me and we had never met. And he said, after your lecture, there's a break, you know, it's the end of the meeting and the end of the day. He said, I brought a bottle of wine from my cellar. Would you join me at the bar for a glass of wine? I said, okay, sure, you know, whatever. And so uh, we met and we had a nice chat and he opened this bottle and he had a plate of cheese along with it. And it's like no drink I had ever had before. It, it wasn't the 20 or $40 bottle. Uh, I'm sure it was far more pricey than that, but it, it was the good stuff. And uh, consequently, I got hooked on, on the you know, big and bold flavors, particularly of California wines. And so then I started uh, wine tasting a little bit and I'm still a novice, uh, but, but I do enjoy it. It's fun to try new things. There's a huge social aspect to it when you go with friends and do a, a tasting. And also Napa, Sonoma, the whole California scene is very friendly. You usually meet the vintner themselves and sit down and have a chat with them and walk across the property with them and they tell stories and you meet their families and all that stuff. So it's very sociable and it's so, so it's an enjoyable experience. And so uh, I still do that from time to time, although I haven't been obviously in the COVID era but um, I still get my shipments uh, on schedule. Yes, and then yeah. The, 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 the culture and the music thing is a different story. Um, when I was in school, I took, uh, well, first my, my parents forced me to take piano lessons, which I actually hated at the time, because I wanted to play with my friends out in the yard. But anyway, I was forced to, to study piano and I didn't really like it. And then when I was in fifth grade, um, the music uh, director at the elementary school said, you know, do you want to be in the band? And I said, sure, I'll be in the band. And he said, what instrument do you want to play? And I said, I have no idea. He handed me a pair of drumsticks and a, and a drum pad and, uh, and showed me a few things. And I was able to, you know, duplicate what he showed me without any effort. And he said, well, I think you should uh, take up uh, drumming and percussion. I said, okay, that's what I'll do. So that's what I did. And then um, it, 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 it turned out that it, it paid my way through school because um, when I got to North Carolina, I didn't have my instructor that I'd had in Chicago, who was a very, very talented uh, studio musician in the city. And so when I got to North Carolina, my mother said, well, who's gonna teach you percussion in Raleigh, North Carolina? So she got the name and uh, contact information for the principal percussionist for the North Carolina Symphony, a guy named Rick Modolinsky. And she called him up and said, can you, you know, give my son lessons? And he said, sure, but let's bring him down and we'll do a lesson. So at the end of my first lesson, uh, Rick said, uh, how would you like to play for the orchestra? I said, no, sure. You know, I played in band in high school and orchestra is kind of the same. I said, okay, it sounds like fun. Because of course we have to pay you union scale, even though you're not old enough to be in the union. Because I was only 16 then. And so my first professional gig was at the Kennedy Center in Washington. I played the snare drum on Hector Berlioz Symphony Fantastique. And I was paid $600 plus travel plus per diem. And so I thought I had <laughs> died and gone to heaven. And so then I used to play all the parts that needed extra percussion. So all the big symphonies with the modern composers, Shostakovich, Mahler, uh, you name it. I've played all those with the symphony and it paid my way through undergraduate and medical school because you'd usually do you know, two or three rehearsals and then play the same concert maybe three or four nights in a row. Um, and so, you know, it, a few hundred bucks a pop, it starts to add up. And especially considering this is back in 1977 or 76, 77, that time frame. I think it was about 77, 78. Yep. And do you so still that was big money back then. 
Do you still play? Um, no, you know, when I got to um, when I got to internship and residency, you know, I couldn't practice as many hours per day as you need to stay at that level to play professionally. And I became frustrated by that. And I, and I stopped playing, you know, I, I can still bang out a few tunes. And in fact, I'm restoring my old uh, 1969 Ludwig set uh, during the COVID uh, downtime actually. So I've just now set, set my set back up downstairs and uh, I'm getting ready to play it after I restore the finish. And, We'll have to see if we can do a reprise of the Anka Tones yeah. with Lee Schwartzberg and his guitar Pilate. Yeah. Like get all of the oncologists together. One um, time I played a, I played with a, a, a band uh, that my friends at Genentech organized at a meeting once and they, they called the band Black Box Warning. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sat in and played, uh, I think, two Jimi Hendrix tunes with them. And so that was a lot of fun. I didn't play very well, but it was a lot of fun. That's great. That's great. Reshma, I'm going to kick it back over to you to kind of dive a little deeper into some of the clinical um, accomplishments. Uh, and then we'll kind of volley back and forth to see if we can weave in some more personal things. Sure. So, Mark, I, I would uh, be remiss to not talk to you about HER2 positive disease. Um, you know, in terms of your passions in medicine, this is clearly an area that you've been really focused in. Uh, it's it's so surprising to see, and one of our success stories, I would say, in, in the treatment of breast cancer or treatment of in oncology in general, um, the story of HER2-positive breast cancer. So I'd be really curious to get your perspective. Did you ever expect us to be where we are? I mean, you know, you were involved in the pivotal Herceptin um, uh, uh, trials, and, and now we've had this explosion of new therapies. And I gave a CME talk this morning, and there was a slide that had about eight different antibody drug conjugates in development. It's, uh, it's really impressive to see the progress we've made, but um, give us your perspective. Is this something that you kind of saw coming, uh, or are you equally surprised? I'm more surprised. Not equally, I'm, I'm much more surprised. I never would have dreamed we would, you know, have three new FDA approvals just in the past few months for new HER2 targeted indi indications, for instance. So there's never been a more exciting time and I wouldn't have dreamed of, of this kind of uh, activity. Um, when, I joined, when I joined Dennis Slayman's lab, it's interesting, um, many of my faculty advisors at UCLA who were professors in medical oncology then they said, oh, you know, uh, Slayman is working on these silly antibodies. They're never going to work. They, they, they were mouse antibodies at first. And so being in the wrong species, they're going to cause human anti-mouse antibody reactions and you can't give them multiple doses, et cetera. And so I knew that. I knew that, but I was more interested in the, the oncogene itself. I wanted to work on a lab that was working on oncogenes and particularly genetic alterations of oncogenes, in this case, for two gene amplification. So that was the reason I... I joined the Slayman lab was to work on HER2 and gene amplification. Um, I, I believed my professors at the time that antibodies would not work. And so I firmly believed that. And even with antibody humanization, I didn't really think that would probably work either, um, to be honest with you. And then one evening I was at my house about 6.30 in the evening. I had just gotten home and we were uh, making some dinner and the phone rang and it's Dennis Slayman. And he said, uh, I have some big news. And I said, okay, what's that? And he goes, uh, the uh, pivotal trial of Herceptin uh, is positive um, for, you know, progression-free and overall survival. And I was, I was really surprised. I was absolutely shocked. So uh, I didn't necessarily think that it would work on the first try. Um, certainly the mouse antibody didn't work. And we did phase one studies with the mouse antibody indeed at UCLA at the time. So yeah, I mean, that started the, the ball rolling. And then, you know, years later, Dennis and I were invited to give a talk at GlaxoSmithKline in Raleigh-Durham, uh, kind of their, their headquarters at the time, for oncology research at least. And so we, we, we went and we gave our talks. I think I did the preclinical talk and Dennis gave the clinical talk about the pivotal trial with Herceptin, et cetera. Unbeknownst to us, they had a small molecule kinase inhibitor that blocked HER2, lapatinib, and we had never heard of that. So we were so shocked that somebody had, you know, gotten that to work out to get an inhibitor that could block the kinase domain. So we were super excited by that also. Um, although since it hits the EGF receptor, it causes 
toxicity like rash and diarrhea, et cetera. But nevertheless, that was another complete surprise. We didn't even know until after we finished our lectures that that's what they were about to show us. We thought they had just invited us to talk about Herceptin, but they actually had an ulterior motive, and that is to show us that they they got a small molecule to work as well. And so now, you know, tucatinib was just approved uh, by the FDA a couple of weeks ago. That takes out the EGFR complication with uh, excess toxicities um, because it does not block EGF receptor. It's a pure HER2 kinase inhibitor. So that was the dream all those years ago to come up with something like tucatinib plus have all the antibody-directed therapies like uh, antibodies as well as antibody-direct conjugates. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's it's just been incredible that this has all happened and I did not anticipate that this would be the case necessarily. One area that um, we, we often think of in, in terms of immunotherapy is triple negative disease. And sometimes it, it, it's lost on us that um, a lot of these anti-HER2 targeted therapies work by inducing ADCC and other immune mechanisms. And uh, what are your thoughts on the incorporation of checkpoint inhibitors and an immunotherapy in HER2 positive disease? Do you think that this is an area that's going to pan out? Well, it already, you know, checkpoint inhibition, again, with an antibody-based approach, uh, just as we, you know, pioneered with the first humanized antibody Herceptin, that opened the floodgates for human-engineered antibodies around the same time that we were developing Herceptin. Cetuximab development, you know, started soon after that, and rituximab development was ongoing at the same time as the trastuzumab work. It's a chimeric antibody, but it's still human-engineered in as much as it's chimeric. So that opened the floodgates for all antibody therapeutics, uh, not only in oncology, but across you know, medicine broadly. Um, human engineering made it possible to give multiple doses. So yeah, it became super exciting. And, and uh, checkpoint antibodies are yet another example of an antibody therapeutic, in this case, uh, blocking um, you know, a, an immunosuppressive uh, signal to allow more robust anti-tumor immunity to emerge. And uh, checkpoint antibodies in triple negative breast cancer have also fairly recently been approved. Atezolizumab is an approved agent now by the FDA in combination with uh, a taxane and first-line metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And that same approach is now being studied at, the, at least even in early stage breast cancer where we hope that it'll be even more impactful than in the metastatic setting. So yeah, I mean, uh, antibodies can be so versatile and they can be used for so many different uh, indications. Moreover, in triple negative disease, there's a new antibody drug conjugate that was just approved um, again, uh, like a, a couple of weeks ago as well, uh, sasituzumab govatecan. And once again, it's, it's an antibody uh, to which is coupled a, a cytotoxic payload. And that works in triple negative breast cancer. Um, and also, I'll just uh, kind of tie these two themes together for a second. Um, it turns out that another HER2 antibody drug conjugate that's a kind of a, a, a cousin of TDM1 is uh, um, in HER2, which the, the brand name is, um, is uh, Trastuzumab uh, deruxtecan. And that has also recently been approved. But it turns out that HER2 antibody drug uh, conjugate works not only in HER2 positive breast cancer, but also in HER2 negative breast cancer, some of which is triple negative. So that's super exciting also. And we're participating in the ongoing trial now in HER2 low, that is HER2 negative breast cancers, including some triple negatives, who are gonna be getting this HER2 antibody drug conjugate. And there's just enough HER2 in triple negative breast cancer. There's always some. It's enough for the payload to get inside the cancer cells and kill it. And that's all it takes. So I'm very optimistic about that approach also. And it, it ties together the HER2 theme, the HER2 antibody theme, along with cytotoxic payloads, conjugated antibodies, into a totally new area that includes an overlapped triple negative breast cancer. You just couldn't, you just couldn't uh, write a script like this uh, if you wanted to. Um, it's all coming together, and it's super exciting. Yeah, we have that study open as well, the Destiny Breast 4 study at, at the yes. University of Miami. And it's so interesting to see how our nomenclature is going to change. We, you know, used to have Absolutely. these triple negative, HER2 positive, and we're going to have this whole uh, new new way of talking about these HER2 low patients if, if the trial is positive. Sarah, you were going to say? Yep. Yeah, I was just going to try to tie, you know, 
as you are excited about the about the changes and advancements in the treatment of breast cancer, you know, Mark, I know that you mentor a lot of, um, you know, students, younger oncologists, especially being uh, in the environment at Stanford. You know, what are you encouraging them to focus on and how do you kind of help them determine how to balance, you know, the, the excitement behind all of these potentials and then, you know, managing patients right in front of them um, with some of the limitations that we may have at the moment. How do you help some of the people that you're mentoring kind of develop that balance? Well, the first lesson is that uh, nothing about scientific investigation is glamorous um, at all. So I tell them about the days when I was in the basement of the vivarium at UCLA measuring, you know, mouse human tumor xenografts that were HER2 positive, treated with various anti-HER2 approaches. And the vivarium is dark, it's smelly, it's in the basement, there are no windows. You have to dress up in a spacesuit because these are all immunosuppressed mice so that you can grow human tumors in them and they won't reject them. And so it's totally not glamorous measuring hundreds of tumors, you know, twice a week um, for months on end. And, uh, and so that's, that's the first thing is uh, science is, you know, it's, it's uh, tedious, it's repetitive, it's boring, um, but only through that kind of work will you eventually, you know, see, you know, success. Um, but it's tedious and it's not exciting uh, on many occasions. It turns out that on, on more than one occasion, those uh, times when I was measuring these tumors in the vivarium, uh, and this is all with handwritten notebooks back in those days. There were no electronic uh, records of any kind and all manual measure measurements. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, you, you, it always happened that, that, you know, the sponsor of the preclinical work, they would always have some deadline for like an IND filing with the FDA or an internal funding go, no go decision point at Genentech, et cetera. It turns out that these measurements always happen like on Thanksgiving Day or on Christmas Eve, like almost or New Year's Eve. So I spent all these odd, you know, time points in the basement measuring tumors. And uh, I always, but the good news is I always had a student with me who, yeah. uh, who would uh, help as a scribe to write down all the measurements, et cetera. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, oftentimes you have to follow your, no follow your nose when you find something unexpected. You know, you might have a presupposed notion about how an experiment is going to turn out and you'll get the opposite result. And uh, it's easy to, at first, just dismiss that and say, well, something must have gone wrong with the experiment because it's obviously not correct or whatever. But it's really critical to chase that down because sometimes it turns out to be the most important finding. I'll give you two examples. TDM1 was originally designed as a negative control in an experiment looking at different cleavable linker chemistries for antibody drug conjugates based on Herceptin. And since it was a stable linker and, and the payload can't be disconnected from the antibody backbone, it was thought that that would never kill the cell because the payload could never release itself from the targeting antibody, Herceptin in this case. Well, in the in vivo experiments, again in mice, um, the best results in terms of anti-tumor effects were with the negative control. And so that could have easily just been dismissed as probably, you know, the tech made a mistake or whatever, but they followed up on it and they recognized that the mechanism was internalization. Receptor-mediated endocytosis caused that whole molecule to be internalized and trafficked to the lysos lysosome and that's where the payload is ultimately released. And, and that was not envisioned at the time those experiments were done. Um, uh, another good example is the discovery, again, in the Slayman lab after I left, the discovery of CDK4-6 uh, inhibitor activity in ER-positive breast cancer when uh, Dennis Slayman, Richard Finn, and, and the whole team there started working on CDK4-6 inhibitors. They thought that since triple negative breast cancers were the most rapidly proliferating proliferating breast cancers, along with HER2 positives, they thought those would probably be the most sensitive to CDK4-6 inhibition. So when they did the experiments on a panel of about, I think, 47 different cell lines that had representation of all the different 
intrinsic phenotypes of breast cancer, HER2 positive, VR positive, triple negative, et cetera. They found the best results were in luminal ER positive disease, a complete surprise. Uh, they, the opposite of what they anticipated. So that's another striking example of, uh, you know, don't follow your hypothesis, follow your results. So uh, be data driven. So that's, that's yeah. the second thing that I, I try to instill on my, my mentees is uh, go, go in whichever direction the research takes you because you're probably gonna wind up somewhere you never envisioned. And that's a good thing usually. Yeah. Mark, uh, building on that, you, you talked to us about some surprising uh, results in the lab. Talk to us about a case that stands out to you uh, in the clinic. Uh, I'm sure over the years you've seen really sure. things. Um, is there? Well, there's so many. We can talk the rest of the night about just that. I'll tell you, if, I, if we have time, I'll tell you a couple. One is um, a, a nurse who participated in some of our early phase trials. I think she was on the, the, the phase two or one of the first patients on the phase three trastuzumab receptin trial. And um, she had a liver that was completely packed with tumor. And she was in trouble. The liver function tests were starting to go up, not up so high that she was disqualified from participation in the trial, but almost. She had such bad liver dysfunction that she had bleeding esophageal varices from portal hypertension. Um, that's where the veins in the esophagus swell up because of pressure, because of lack of blood, throw, blood flow through the liver. So she was in, in, in big trouble. She had basically a, a complete response to the Herceptin. Yeah. And then, you know, five years later, she was still on it. She was a nurse and, so, and she lived in Bakersfield, California, a long way from Los Angeles. So we eventually arranged to get her home intravenous Herceptin and have it delivered to her house. And she used to hook it up to her own portacath since she's a nurse, she could do everything herself. And so she was alive and well at five years, at 10 years, at 15 years. And she would not stop the Herceptin. I tried to get her to stop it at five years. I tried to get her to stop it at 10 and she would never listen to me. She was somewhat superstitious in that regard, but eventually she finally stopped. And, uh, and she's still alive and well to this day. Uh, she came to my professorship ceremony here at Stanford back when I first came to, uh, back to California and she's doing great. And she hasn't been on Herceptin for years now. And so that was an extraordinary, exceptional uh, response. And that's Another, used with uh, Herceptin as a single agent, not with chemo in addition? I believe she was on a chemo trial at the time. Um, I believe she did get a chemo. Um, there was another patient in phase one who had biopsy-proven pulmonary metastasis. I think she had 16 pulmonary nodules. She was one of Dr. Slayman's patients. And she had a complete response on the phase one chemo plus Herceptin dose escalation trial. And she's never had a recurrence. And she only got, I think, uh, four cycles of chemo and 16 weeks of Herceptin because that's all the Herceptin there was back in those days. And she uh, lived uh, a normal life as well and never had a recurrence. And then one last case uh, is one, another one of my patients who was very young. She was in real trouble. She had um, severe uh, cervical spine metastasis. It was impacting her. Uh, spinal cord and the stability of her cervical spine. She had to have a very dangerous and aggressive uh, both neurosurgical and orthopedic procedure with lots of metal and screws and rods and all kinds of hardware to stabilize the spine. And she was on one of the Herceptin uh, trials. And I believe in her case, it was a single agent trial. And she had an incredible response too. And now she's in the Young Survivors Coalition. I see her at meetings from time to time. She sends me email updates. She's still in Los Angeles and has done well. She's still on treatment though. She's had multiple treatments over the years as different new uh, approaches uh, evolved. It was just at the right time when she needed it. And then she responded again each of those times. And now she's got you know two new options that have just been approved, uh, for example. So um, that's another just unbelievable, exceptional responder that I would have never imagined could, could uh, do so well for so many years. That was in, I guess, the early to mid-1990s when we were treating her. And this is 2020, and she's still on various treatments. Yeah, that's just incredible. 
Do you find that you talk to patients differently, like over the decades, let's say, do you think that cancer has evolved, you know, the, now when we speak to patients, whereas you used to think of it as, you know, this is a devastating situation. Now there's like so many new advances and hope uh, that it causes you to just speak to patients differently. Of course. I had clinic today, as a matter of fact, and um, there was a patient who was diagnosed previously at another institution with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. She developed new disease progression in the lung, and we just re-biopsied one of the lung lesions, and now it unequivocally has high-level HER2 gene amplification. And so now suddenly she has a whole new avenue of treatment approaches. She's never had a HER2-targeted drug in her past. Um, and so, and she's, uh, I think, 35 years old. And so suddenly, you know, we've gone from a situation with triple negative disease with progression of kind of, a, 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 you know, modest prognosis, not terrible, but still guarded prognosis. Now to one that she will probably get a survival benefit from the next, you know, two or three lines of treatment. So she was just, you know, couldn't believe that this had happened. We were surprised too. Another example is, you know, cancer is so dynamic and it can and does change. And, you know, repeating diagnostic workups and repeating biopsies and repeating biomarkers in this case in particular is critical because it can change your entire treatment strategy and open up whole new promising avenues. So the answer is yes, there's so much more hope now in cancer treatment in general, not just breast cancer, but across the board, there's so much more hope than when I was in training. Was when I was in training as a fellow, there would some sometimes be years that went by between new drug approvals for oncology therapeutics. It was not uncommon for two or three years to go by with no new FDA-approved indication for an oncology drug. And now, um, I went to a lecture uh, the end of last year, I believe it was, uh, or no, maybe the end of 2018, actually. And it was a, a, an invited speaker we invited from the FDA. Uh, his name is Lamary. And one of his first slides was new hematology oncology drugs approved since 2011. And the slide was completely packed from top to bottom with small font of new drugs. I mean, it's just absolutely astounding. And now I feel Sorry for my trainees that they have to memorize all that stuff. There's no way I could remember all of them at my age, but uh, the young, the young, the next generation will save us. Uh, I hope. Well, but no, it's been just an incredible change since I was in training to now. It's night and day. Well, I have a question that I'm going to ask both of you. That's just kind of really timely. It would be a shame if I didn't get your take on it. You know, everything's changed. I, I feel like I said this the other day on a webinar. I feel like I went to sleep for me. It was March 14th. My son turned six. Um, and I went to sleep on March 14th and I woke up to a new world. I mean, it, that's how it felt for me. It felt like all of this COVID just felt yeah. very much in the periphery. And then all of a sudden it was here and you couldn't leave and school closed and, you know, the world changed. And I know all three of us um, are in the provider space in terms of you know, the way that we, we wake up and, and practice our day. Um, you know, I really wanna talk with both of you about what, and maybe the two of you can have this conversation. What do you think this time, you know, these seven weeks and potentially these upcoming months ahead, what has it meant for cancer care? I mean, really, when you think about the clinical trials that have been impacted in terms of enrollment and compliance and adherence, when you think of screening and, and you know, standard testing and, and visits, and even how you all are practicing um, in telemedicine, what has it meant and what does it mean for cancer care? And do you think that there are things that you can pull from it um, that will last. Maybe you can have that conversation together as peers. Rashma, I'll let you start. Yeah, so, you know, I, I agree with you, Sarah. I really think that this felt like a night and day experience for us. And 
Um, for, for me, I, I really am trying to look at this in a way where I'm seeing some of the positives that's come, that have come out of it. I think um, it's shined a light on the places that we could do better, disparities in care, uh, access to treatments. Um, I, I think that it also has allowed us to refocus and see where we can, um, where, where we can pivot and actually uh, use, use the platform of telemedicine or other, other ways to communicate with patients, keep in contact with them. And hopefully some of these things will, will carry over um, because I do think a lot of patients actually appreciate the opportunity to, do, uh, to have telemedicine visits. Um, we just didn't have the situation before where we were able to be reimbursed for it. We weren't able to, to get that done. Now, hopefully, the, the changes in reimbursement will, may last and, and go forward. And I think a lot of patients um, are going to benefit from that because I can see a patient in Florida who wants to consult with Dr. Pegram in California and maybe can do that via telemedicine a couple months from now and maybe wouldn't have been able to do that a couple months ago. So that's something good that I would say has come out of it. Of course, there have been uh, major challenges. Obviously, the, the main thing is the unfortunate loss of, of life and livelihood for so many people. Um, I think I share the same concern that you brought up about clinical trials and where where that's going to leave us on the other side of this. Uh, I think we're going to be feeling the impact of um, halt, halting clinical trial enrollment for many studies and uh, delayed accrual times as we move forward. Um, I, I think that's going to be a lasting impact. I do think that many of us as, as uh, researchers are still very committed to putting patients on studies and sponsors uh, are committed to doing so when it's safe to do so. So some of our studies have remained open and especially for patients that don't have a lot of other good options, we've um, been able to still successfully enroll them on trials. Um, curious to see, to hear your perspective, Mark. I think we're, you know, this is one situation where globally we're all in the same boat. And so we're facing the exact same challenges you mentioned and using some of the exact same solutions like telemedicine. Uh, fortunately at our center, the, our center is fairly progressive. And so they allowed us as a research team in the breast cancer program and each other cancer type as well, we were each allowed to choose clinical trials that we felt were essential. And, um, and so we were able to maintain a portfolio of trials that is still very robust, still offers multiple options for multiple subtypes of breast cancer in different stages, different phases from, um, you know, early stage breast cancer versus metastatic breast cancer, et cetera. So we were able to do that with the approval of, uh, of the institution and the commitment of our, you know, clinical research staff. And so, um, you know, they're in the trenches the same as the uh, staff in the emergency room and the pulmonary ward and the ICUs. They're also facing, you know, patients that may be potentially infectious, et cetera, and they're still committed to enrolling them on studies. The FDA has been also very progressive by allowing sponsors to um, issue uh, documents of allowable exceptions in order to keep people on studies. So if there's a delay in a follow-up visit because of the COVID-19 problem, that's now kind of allowed, that's actually allowed. And as long as you report it at the end to the IRB, the FDA allows sponsors to uh, issue these types of uh, allowable exceptions, for example. And we've done the same with some of our own investigator-initiated trials at our institution. And the other thing that, that I think won't change is it's allowed a whole new era of de-escalation considerations and treatment of cancer. For example, um, uh, in HER2 positive early stage breast cancer in patients with small lymph node negative tumors, they can be treated just with a low dose of weekly Taxol and Herceptin and they don't need extra antibodies or antibody drug conjugates or uh, extended adjuvant uh, uh, therapy with a small molecule HER2 kinase inhibitors. They don't need any of that. They just need a little bit of chemo and a little bit of Herceptin. Well, we have data now on, let's say, six months of Herceptin versus a year of Herceptin. And so now those data are really coming to light 
in many of the cases, they, some of the studies for some subsets weren't quite as good at six months as a year, but for some patients, indeed many patients, six months of, looks just as good as a year for selected patients. So that's one thing. And number two, you can now give Perceptin, trastuzumab, subcutaneously. So that opens up the possibility of a much shorter amount of time spent in the infusion area getting your shot or even the possibility of home treatment with a, uh, with a home visiting nurse. And we have some clinical trials of uh, patients now who are getting Perceptin plus Pergetta in a fixed dose combination subcutaneously so they don't even have to come to clinic. That's still on a clinical study, but that was one of our high priority studies. But back to the de-escalation story, there was data presented at San Antonio, the attempt trial of using TDM1 instead of this weekly low-dose Taxol Herceptin regimen, and that saves a whole lot more visits to the clinic where patients could be exposed to the COVID virus. And so we decided as a group for selected patients that TDM1, which is only once every three weeks, would be safer for the patient coming to a medical center than weekly uh, paclitaxel for 12 weeks along with Herceptin. So I think those types of de-escalation maneuvers are probably going to be here to stay and fixed after the COVID era. And it's good for patients. It saves them from travel to and from the clinic, trying to find a parking space, waiting in the waiting room, waiting for their blood test results, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there are many opportunities in oncology where, where we can, you know, they always say never miss the opportunity to take advantage of a, of a disaster. And these are examples where we could actually take advantage of it and come out on the other side in a better place. And Mark, what about personally? You know, I know that you are probably a multi-million miler on American Airlines. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like in trying to coordinate a lot of things with you, over the years, you're always flying to or from somewhere, or you're busy, you know, toiling in the night, grading things and reviewing things. What about you personally? Usually, usually, writing, usually writing grants that don't get funded right. at night. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing differently? Like, what does, what's life in the Pegram home looking like during this, uh, this, this time? Endless, endless Zoom meetings. It's just absolutely incredible. And, and at least, you know, more than half of them are, are about the COVID situation. For some reason at our institution, I'm sure this is the same in Miami. I'm, I'm happy to hear what Reshma has to say about this, but it seems like the department leaders want to talk about the COVID problem. The hospital directors want to talk about it. The cancer institute directors wants, wants to have standing meetings every week, you know, once or twice to talk about it. The clinical research uh, programs want to have a meeting to talk about it. The dean's office wants to have a meeting to talk about it. The university wants to have a meeting to talk about it. So I have like every week at least, you know, double digit standing COVID meetings where pretty much everybody says the same thing every week that are totally unnecessary, but that's the price you pay at a big institution. So I'm, I'm sick of Zoom and WebEx and, and uh, Microsoft, uh, whatever it's called. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of all these formats, but uh, yeah, it's been very tedious. Uh, and I do manage to get some work done in between these silly calls, but uh, it does save you some time by not having to go, you know, wait in long lines at the airport through security and your flight's delayed and the weather's bad, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't miss that. I don't miss the rubber chicken on American Airlines. Uh, so that's a good thing. <laughs> so all in all, I don't mind not traveling, but I do miss the friendship though, the, the camaraderie the um you know the colleagues that we all have in the field oncology is a very small group of people if you really get right down to it and everybody knows everybody and so i do miss the uh times you know during the and after the meeting you know we all run cases by each other we all talk about our families and friends and circumstances and have dinners together and things like that and, and i really truly do miss the camaraderie because it's not quite the same over a over a laptop screen a lot gets lost over a laptop and i i been frustrated. I called Sarah the other day and uh, had just um, had a real tough conversation with someone by telemedicine and I was so frustrated because so much of what we do in oncology, at, well as a, a breast oncologist especially, is that um, we have such a connection with our patients for so many years. We have so we have patients that have been in our practice for years, and it's really hard when you have that long relationship with someone to have to tell them through a video screen that it's time 
to stop um, and to pursue hospice or palliative care. It's really, really difficult hard. to have the conversation that, you know, your treatment's no longer working and uh, not be able to go through the scan with them. Uh, you know, it, it's really tough. And then for the six month follow-up visits, a physical exam is part of that. So yep. really, I've, I've really been very frustrated in many ways with telemedicine. At the same time, it does make things a, a bit more efficient in certain ways. You can get a lot of things done, um, a lot of questions answered a lot quicker than dragging someone into the office for something that could be handled in a 15 minute Zoom call. But uh, I'm with you, I'm Zoomed out. Uh, I yep. feel 24 seven uh, Zoom, I'm, I'm really done with it and I miss the personal interaction. It's gonna be very strange ASCO this year. Um, by the way, uh, any anything that you're looking forward to at ASCO? I'm not on the program committee this year, so I don't have much of a heads up of what's going to be presented in the oral session. So I, I really don't have anything that I'm, that I'm aware of that I'm dying to see. Um, I've signed up for one of these uh, programs where you're supposed to give, you know, feedback online, et cetera. I've done that over the, over the past years. And um, so they'll give me assignments of which abstracts I'm supposed to cover. And so I'll do those diligently. And uh, it will be nice to do that online instead of walking back and forth a mile and a half across yeah. McCormick Place trying to reach the next meeting in time. Um, so that uh, will be much easier. Um, and, I, and I do... Uh, like that opportunity. I don't like the fact that it's not live. I understand that everything will be downloaded on Friday morning of ASCO all at once and uh, you can watch it uh, on demand basically, but I don't know how the Q&A is going to work and, that, and that's the one thing I'll miss. Now the plenaries have never had Q&A at ASCO, which I've always thought is a huge mistake. That's the most important time to have a Q&A is when something is potentially practice changing in a plenary. But nevertheless, uh, th there isn't Q&A in that format, so that I won't miss because they've never had it. But for all the other oral sessions and the poster discussions, I'll miss that. And I'm curious how they're going to work their posters. I hope they have the presenter available online in a chat format or something because the whole point of the poster sessions is you, uh, you make the presenter walk you through their poster. And that's the whole exercise. And that's when you can really... Uh, you know, shake down the presenter and find out all the flaws in the, in the study design, et cetera. And, and so I'll, I'll miss that. I hope there's a way to do that virtually, but I, I, I'll be as surprised as everyone else to see what happens on that Friday morning. I don't know what to expect and I don't, don't know what the format's gonna be for the posters. So yeah. it's, it's very much, you know, it's a new world. And I think everybody, you know, when you think about everything from clinical practice to virtual meetings, uh, educational meeting, uh, even the way our, you know, our children go to school, everything's new. And it's almost like you don't know what to expect until you're right in front of it. So um, I, I will say that 2020 is probably going to go down as the year of flexibility, as much as frustration. Um, Mark, as we round this out, we've got five more minutes. And I just want to kind of do a lightning round a little bit to, to ask you a few um, questions. Oh, I'd love to know. Hard. I'd love hard. to know your favorite food. Oh, that's easy. My mother's homemade pizza from scratch. Delicious. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. No question your, about it. That's easy. Your favorite place. Wow, that's a real tough question because I've I've been so happy in so many different places, including ones where I've lived. Um, there's some very special places. I, I loved Australia, for example. I thought that was just a really special place to be. Um, I loved Antarctica, of all places. If you ever get a chance to go down there, it's absolutely spectacular. It's unimaginable, the uh, diversity of uh, life forms down there. Um, there was a cold water diving team aboard the National Geographic ship that I was on, and they would show their videos after dinner. They looked like tropical dives. Everything was so colorful under the ice down there. It's just absolutely astounding. And then to see the grandeur of the continent itself and all the huge, you know, ice forms and, uh, you know, icebergs that are, you know, a mile wide, et cetera. It's just really, really, really interesting. So that was, it turns out, one of my favorite places. I thought I would hate it because I thought there would be nothing down there to do or see at all. But it turns it turned out to be absolutely an awakening that, uh, you know, something as exotic as that could be on the planet. Right. 
what about your favorite song? Favorite song? Well, it's kind of weird because it's not, I, I don't listen so much to vocal groups. So my, my favorite record is a Maynard Ferguson big band record, live at Jimmy's in New York City, Maynard Ferguson, MF Horn 4 and 5. And my favorite tune on that record is probably, uh, it's probably Nice and Juicy. Um, it's kind of a jazz rock uh, tune with uh, Maynard blowing his typical, you know, super high trumpet notes all the way through, basically, and some really outstanding uh, solos and a fantastic rhythm section. It's one, of, it's one of the best live jazz albums, I believe, of all time, and it's probably my favorite record. We'll have to get that on our song list, Reshma. Uh, yeah. Good luck. You won't find it on, um, it's not on um, uh, iTunes. You have to buy the 12-inch the LP or a tape, or it is on CD now, but you cannot get it on iTunes or, okay, or very Amazon. Intriguing. I imagine it's going to sell out everywhere now that it, they do have vinyl. It um, should. It should. <laughs> How about favorite movie? Uh, my favorite movie in terms of... Um, you know, just uh, a drama, you know, a, a fine film from that point of view is Dr. Zhivago. Mm. I mean, just the, the script is just amazing, you know, based on the book, the, the, the actors and actresses in that film were just absolutely astounding. The direction was, was amazing. Cinematography was just uh, unbelievable. And um, it explores so many different areas of the human existence, um, you know, during wartime, et cetera. It, it just covers so many different aspects of, uh, you know, love and hatred and war and, uh, you know, just the, the human experience and the human existence and all human struggles all wrapped into one film. And it has an intermission, which you need because it's, it's a heavy film. My next favorite film after that, though, in terms of just amusement, is actually a Western, um, Silverado. You must see this film. Uh, written and directed by the Kasdan brothers. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan, the famous director, uh, was the director of this film, and he and his brother wrote the script. The lineup of, of actors, uh, Brian Dennehy, Jonathan Cleese, Danny Glover, Scott Glenn, Kevin Costner, Jeff Goldblum, Linda Hunt, uh, Rosanna Arquette, all in the same film. What a cast. It's a classic Western, but it's not so simple as that. It also explores so many different complex aspects of humanity. It's got the, um, the whole theme of uh, you know, good versus evil. It's got the theme of uh, you know, uh, racial injustice is uh, woven into that film. Um, it's got many lighthearted and comedic scenes as well, but it also is very well acted, an amazing script that, that encompasses so many different aspects of uh, the human existence. Once again, the music is absolutely phenomenal. That's also a common theme with Chivago. That has some of the finest uh, film music ever. Um, and cinematography in Silverado is absolutely spectacular. It was shot mostly in New Mexico in the mountains and it's just uh, just a, a work of uh, art, really, a very fine film. And nobody would, like, you know, if you told me, oh, what do you wanna watch on Netflix tonight? You wanna watch a Western? I would say, no, not in a million years. I don't really care for Westerns. But this isn't just a Western. This is a very, very lovely film. And uh, I hope that our viewers will uh, take time to yeah, watch it. Very entertaining, very entertaining. And, and I'll end with, what's something that most people don't know about you? Well, that's a tough question. Um, uh, <laughs> maybe most people don't know that I can, uh, dur during the COVID era, I've been dabbling a little bit in the kitchen. Um, it used to be that I could make only things that could be cooked in a microwave or things that come in a box. And I'm still good at that. I can still make a, a pretty mean craft macaroni and cheese because I add four or five different cheeses. I saute some onions and some butter and add that to it with some uh, bacon uh, chips, et cetera. And so that's, uh, you know, but now I've been uh, branching out a little bit. I've been baking some uh, cookies. I've been making some uh, crock pot stews that have turned out really well. I've been making a lot of spaghetti. So uh, it turns out um, I can actually uh, cook a little bit. And I actually, um, I, I tell my wife, the reason the dishes turn out as well as they do is because I actually follow the recipes Whereas my wife makes all kinds of substitutions with low fat this and no salt and, and this and that. And 
<laughs> too many vegetables. And so that it, it never turns out quite as good. But I follow the recipes and it's uh, so far it's worked pretty, pretty well. Well, we'll be looking forward to the uh, cookbook, the COVID cookbook by Mark Pete. There you go. That's right. And it, it still will boast uh, the Kraft macaroni and cheese, of course. Yes. It'll have some, it'll have some other interesting recipes that aren't out of the box. Well, I thank you so much for being with us. I told you an hour was going to go by so fast. Uh, Reshma, I'm so grateful that you were able to kind of dive a little bit deeper onto the exciting things that he's been involved with. Um, this throughout was his life. And, and really, it, I mean, it really does give you a little bit of a peek behind, um, you know, what we all know from the podium, which I think is, it's something we all need uh, to kind of see the human behind every one of us at this time that, you know, it's not just necessarily what we think we know. Um, it's a time really to kind of dive deeper um, and to seek after the things that matter. So Mark, I loved spending this time with you, getting to know you better. You, I can speak for Rachel when I say you've influenced both of our lives in a way that really matters. Um, you're always there with encouragement. You're always there to make us laugh uh, and you're always there to kind of set us in line. And I know that a lot of things that we've done, we wouldn't have been able to do without your influence. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the time we got to spend with you getting to know you better. Well, I wanna say the same thing about you. I miss you guys. I uh, can't wait to see you after the plague is over. Yes, and, we uh, miss you in Miami, Mark. We're, uh, we hope to have you back one day. <laughs> I'll be back. If not, in, if not in Miami, we'll both meet you on a National Geographic ship in Antarctica. I think that sounded kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> good. Sounds good. Well, thank you All so right. much. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks, everyone. Take care.